Hey there. Well, thanks so much for joining us again for another of our Room and Room podcasts. It's really great to have you joining in for another discussion, all things to do with ruminant nutrition. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based here in Lincoln and Canterbury in New Zealand, working with the PGG Rights and Seeds team. Well, this is now our 21st podcast in our Ruminant Nutrition podcast collection. And if you've tuned into number 20 of our podcasts, you'll pick up that actually this particular podcast we're doing now is part two of a two-part series that's a bit different to some of our earlier podcasts. In this mini two-part uh, podcast, we have extended the discussion out from ruminant nutrition and more into the reproductive performance of lactating dairy cows. Now, if you've listened to episode 20, you'll potentially remember that we talked about many things to do with the onset of cycling, uh, in other words, ovulation, in lactating dairy cows, seasonally calved cows, and also the potential role for that as it feeds into expression of oestrus by dairy cows heading into mating. We talked mostly in that podcast about the importance of cows resuming ovulation nice and early after calving, or otherwise if they remain anestrous or those non-cyclers, this will either need some serious veterinary input to help kickstart those cows with their cycling activity, or otherwise if we do nothing, of course, these anestrous cows in our seasonal calving system will very much mess with you being able to achieve our ideal three-week submission rate of 90% of cows submitted for the first time during the first three weeks, preferably more than 90%, in a seasonally calving herd. And that's certainly not an ideal thing to have a below-target submission rate because, of course, as you'll recall, that messes with our important measure of reproductive efficiency in our cows and seasonal uh, calving situations of getting 78% or more cows in calf by the end of week six of mating. So enough about our last episode. What are we going to cover in this current episode? Well, what we're first going to do is finish up the story around anestrous cows. Now, we ran out of time in the last episode to finish up a really important risk factor for anestrous cows, which is the social stresses of cows. And once we've talked about that, we'll then move on to that incredibly frustrating cycle where cows or a herd that has a slow submission rate therefore has a slow calving rate the following year. And that slow calving rate then means next year we have a slow submission rate yet again. A very frustrating uh, cycle to break out of. When we've finished that topic, we'll move on to the frustrating cows that may cycle beautifully after calving and yet go and estrus again as you get through to mating. Very frustrating, those ones. Then we'll talk about silent heats. That's when cows are cycling beautifully, but uh, no matter how much we look at them and watch them, they show no signs of visual heat. Again, very frustrating. And then we'll finish up at the end of this podcast with aspects around heat detection. So that's very much on us, the humans involved in the system, and assuming that the cows are cycling well and showing signs of heat, but what can contribute to problems of, uh, of picking up heats and why we can uh, miss these heats. 
Put your feet up, grab something to drink, uh, or if you're out and about doing some chores, keep on keeping on with those, listening in uh, at your place or out and about on the road, in the paddocks, whatever you're doing. <laughs> Mum and Dad's taxi service, maybe. My kids are a bit older now, so I'm off that duty. Or just whatever else is taking up your day. Great to have you listening in with us. Let's get this latest episode underway and pick up the thread we finished in the last episode about anestrous cows and the social stressor factors, uh, particularly in bigger herds, that can increase risk of anestrous cows. Social issues within the hierarchical structure or the pecking order of the herd, this can result in some cows, a proportion of cows in the herd, not eating to appetite, particularly if these cows are at the, like the bottom of the pecking order. And when we think about cows at the bottom of the pecking order, yep, it's uh, most likely to be your two- and three-year-old cows, so they're the younger girls, and particularly if they're coming in a bit smaller in stature, they're a bit shorter um, than your big old mixed-age girls, and those old girls will pick up um, that these little cows are smaller than them, they'll give them a hide and give them a hard time, and because of that, uh, the, the dominant cows knocking the submissive or bottom of the pecking order cows around, those little girls will miss out on the best access to pasture, the best access to supplementary feeds on the feed pad perhaps, particularly if you're a bit tight for space on the feed pad. Or even from a stock water point of view, these submissive cows may miss out on having equal access to water troughs. And if cows, any cows, are thirsty... They will not eat to appetite, and that will be a contributing risk factor to more anestrous cows. Hmm, not ideal. All the more reason to make sure that your two- and three-year-old cows are coming through really well-grown, that they'll hold their own better if they're bigger and more like closely aligned to the size of the mixed-age cows. One other thing around the social battle I guess that goes on in our herds is that increasingly uh, our, our um, farms on average have got bigger over the years and it's not uncommon to have herds that contain five or even 600 cows in a mob and understanding that the more cows in one large mob the more likely it is that these dominant cows will form a real strong hierarchical structure and beat up on and pick on smaller, younger cows, and the submissive cows will be at greater risk of being anestrous. So enough about the social side of it. We're supposed to be talking nutrition, but clearly we can't talk nutrition without taking all this other stuff into account, I guess. So another factor that we need to think about with anestrous cows is a really important thing to go back and look at um, fertility focus results or your software packages that give you descriptors of what the cows have been doing and that is calving rate. So the rate at which your cows calved back through calving time. So if you've got uh, like a really slow stretched out calving that felt like <laughs> at, at the time it was not funny, it just felt like cows just were still calving and calving and calving forever. To be honest, that's a really important modifier of risk of anestrous cows. Like how do you reckon calving rate influences anestrous cows and therefore submission rate? 
Well, look, first up, let's consider those good old girls in the herd that calve down, let's say during the first three weeks of calving. Gotta love those cows because by calving early, it's a really good thing. Those cows, of course, will have a whole lot more time to do their negative energy balance thing and start lifting and, and condition score and energy balance again heading into mating. They've got more time to get their reproductive tract cleaned up, you know, to discharge all that goo and stuff out the back end and get a nice um, contracted down uterus and the ovaries happening, the HPO axis is happening. So there's a lot more time for all that complexity of things to happen and get well out of the way before mating. Early calving cows uh, reproductively will be a lot more successful within seasonal calving herds than our later calving uh, cows. The poor old girls, they might calve two or three weeks before planned start of mating if they're lucky or even right up until mating. And they're on a hiding to nothing. You know, they're doing their negative energy balance thing just as we're heading into mating. Their reproductive tracts are still nowhere nearly cleaned out and sorted there. HPO axis is shut up shop, a whole lot of things working against them. So it's a given that late calving cows are less likely to appear in your first three weeks uh, of submitted cows for start of mating. So poor old late calvers, it's a bit of a challenge for them. And even back in the day when we used to mate um, our seasonal calf cows for a whole lot longer than what we do nowadays. Like some people used to go out to 12 or even 15 weeks. And that was always a, a bit of a shambles when <laughs> you still had cows running around in the springer paddock um, that haven't yet calved on day one of mating. Now, needless to say, we're not going to get a cow submitted during those first three weeks when she's still got a, what would we say, a bun in the oven, so to speak. She's still got a full-term calf on board, you know, during those first three weeks. So that I I guess that's one extreme, and thankfully most of you listening will be mating for much shorter periods of time, so we don't have springer paddocks to check at the same time as you're doing uh, heat detection and mating cows, thankfully. That's certainly an efficiency, and for our well-being, so you're not stretched through that uh, early mating period. And one other thing, I guess, about these late calving cows, even if we are lucky in their negative energy balance isn't for too long after calving, although unfortunately quite often our late calving cows, remember, are getting a bit fat, so they get a bit of ketosis, so they might ironically be in negative energy balance for longer after calving. Anyway, even if we were lucky enough to have a late calving cow ovulate quite early, she, like all of our cows, is very unlikely to show a strong heat or estrus at that first ovulation after calving, and that's what we call silent heats. Now, we're going to come back about silent heats towards the end of this um, podcast, so so just hold that thought. But uh, obviously, these silent heats are a bit of a problem as well, even if we get these late calving cows cycling in a time-effective manner. So coming back to calving rate, we, we agree that a slow calving rate means lots of late calvers, and that is probably, if it's not the most important thing that affects submission rate, it's certainly up there, isn't it? If we've got a long, drawn-out calving, it's it's a bit of a mission to get these cows, I guess, tidied up and, and back in shape in time to be submitted. Yeah, like we say, even if, if we do manage to pick up their first heat after calving, that first ovulation and estrus isn't going to be a very fertile one, and therefore the conception rate to that first 
ovulation is going to be quite a lot lower um, than if she's had two or three or four cycles after calving. So these late carvers will also have a risk of low conception rate um, than if she'd been an early calving cow and had three or four uh, cycles before mating. But we're going to do a deep dive into conception rate and the risk of low conception rate in cows at a later podcast. This one's getting long enough as it is. What if you don't have some software packages that allow you to look at calving rate in a great deal of detail or to associate calving rate with um, risk of anestrum and not being able to submit those cows during early mating? What else can we look at? Now, I guess fertility focus reports, we get them a bit later in the season than if you can sort of look at live data as you're going, such as would be the case for likes of Mind Alive. So fertility focus and, of course, our in-calf program resource that's available to us is to look at things such as, well, key things would be the percentage of cows that have calved. So this is the calving rate thing. Percentage of cows calved at the end of week three, and then again at the end of week six after calving. Now first, if we look at your first calving heifers, they're calving down for the very first time, some of you call them maiden heifers, more than 75% of them should have been calved by the end of week three after calving. And more than 92% of your first calving heifers should have dropped a calf, popped a calf out by the end of week six after calving. In terms of the whole herd collectively, again, we want more than 60% of all cows to have calved by the end of week three and more than 87% to be done and dusted and have calving over and done with by the end of week six. So if using these cut points, your calving rate is slower than this, there is a very strong possibility that slower than calving rate is a big contributor, if not the big contributor, to a lower than ideal three-week submission rate. With this calving rate challenge of a slow calving rate, therefore a, a slow first uh, three-week submission rate, therefore a low six-week in calf rate, in terms of the numbers of cows or proportion of cows and calf by week six of mating, this becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, if you'd like, because you calve slowly, the rate is slow, you submit only low numbers of cows, your six-week in calf rate is low, and so the thing just, it's kind of like a vicious cycle. It just keeps self-perpetuating, and this is quite a challenging, I suppose, annual cycle to break out of, and this is typically why when you engage a rural professional to start to work towards um, trying to break out of the cycle of reproductive failure year on year, we'll usually assume that we're not going to be able to fix it in a single year. So not, I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit negative, but just being realistic that usually we have a few different levers to pull to try and resolve this problem. Now, each and every one of you, if you have got an issue around low submission rate and six-week in calf rate that's been caused by a slow calving rate, there's not going to be a single prescriptive approach to how to fix this problem. So again, this is a podcast. This is not uh, us and you sitting down 
collectively trying to resolve this on your farm because the approach we might take for your farm could be very, very different to another farm. So it's a given. Talk to your rural professional, preferably um, involving a group approach. You might talk to your farm consultant and do a joint meeting with your vet because uh, it could be that, particularly with your vet involved, that you've for a year or two you need to increase the strategic use, for example, of cedars um, that are used and go into cows earlier than what you normally do. Perhaps that's going in before plans start a mating so that the cedar cows are mated to a fixed time insemination uh, really, really early on mating, day one or day two of mating. And as well, any cows that are cycling, you might reach out for part, uh, you can use... Um, you know, like wholly or just part of a uh, Y weight program using prostaglandins. But again, you talk to your vet about this because there's quite a cost involved in this and there's no point doing those costly things if we're not making sure other aspects around the nutrition, animal health and well-being of the herd aren't also being looked at. Otherwise, if you tighten the calving spread up for next year using lots of drugs to help, and we haven't resolved other weaknesses in the system, then that money may not necessarily be the most effective spend. So to reiterate again, podcasts, oh yeah, are interesting, but um, they are not intended to be prescriptive or to replace the advice of your rural professionals working alongside you with your overall approach to, to um, farm well-being and cow well-being. We'll leave the anestrous cow section behind now, but some aspects of things around negative energy balance and other things we've already talked about fit more into a couple of other aspects of uh, why cows may not be submitted during the first three weeks of mating. And it's those cows that were actually ovulating and showing signs of estrus quite early after calving. Maybe collars and tags were picking up that they were showing beautiful peaks and lifts and activities, showing they were cycling routinely early after calving. But hey, what's happened in the meantime? We've come to mating and those cows have stopped again. Oh, how frustrating is that? So we've got activity, and again, especially now with collars and tags, that we can track these cows back and show they definitely had ovulated. We've got something right, good condition at calving. They weren't in negative energy balance for long after calving. Yet, oh, they haven't been mated during the first three weeks of mating. Frustrating. In terms of getting to the bottom of what's going on, it's definitely worth looking for reasons why they have stopped ovulating again. And look, to be honest, most of the reasons they stop ovulating again is because we've had issues of perhaps they've reached back into positive energy balance and they're starting to gain weight again. But for whatever reason, we've hit another period of negative energy balance for a second time between calving and mating. Now, I guess what we're trying to say here is if again we come back to that graph of energy balance and if they only have one period of negative energy balance, it's a U-shape, right? Like the U goes down, they hit worst case scenario where they're in negative energy balance and then they tracks up again as they're starting to gain cow condition. Now in theory, that should be it. And in the case of total mixed ration herds, that should be it. If we're controlling exactly what they eat day after day after day, we'll get energy balance 
um, drop out if you'd like with total mixed ration herds. But if for life's the same for a cow in a barn, total mixed ration, she shouldn't drop down again unless she had a health issue like lameness or mastitis or something. However, here in New Zealand, we have our pasture-based systems where, unfortunately, as we move through from calving to mating, there's a lot of change going on in the world of those cows and there is a risk that a second period of negative energy balance occurs heading into mating so that our graph of energy balance looks less like a U and more like a W. So first period of negative energy balance and then gaining again and then a raft of factors may increase risk. They lose a little bit of condition uh, or other words, another period of negative energy balance again. Of course, the number one risk factor for this is an inadvertent feed pinch. So the cows uh, go uh, without, well not without feed, but a little lesser amount of feed than ideal for a period of time heading into mating. And so those cows were doing really well, and then all of a sudden they're not doing well. And just they mobilise a little bit of condition again heading into mating. Now, it's not just hitting a feed pinch um, and reduced feed intake for a short period of time that causes this double dip in, in negative energy balance uh, and change in cow condition before mating. Sometimes in our pasture-fed spring-calved herds, we might see this occur when we have some late spring storm activity comes through, you know, weather was really lovely and going really well, and all of a sudden we have two or three days of really rough weather, you know, horizontal rain, southerly blow, cows don't graze uh, as proactively as they were, and you may see the storm event and also reduced utilisation of feed because they're trampling more pasture into the mud end up as a a short period of time of negative energy balance. Another factor that we see sometimes is when the cows end uh, their first pasture grazing round of autumn and winter safe pasture that had quite a bit of guts to it, like higher dry matter percent, reasonably well balanced maybe for sugar and protein, and instead they go on to what we call the second grazing round of pasture. So that's eating the pasture that's regrown back after the first grazing of the paddocks earlier on, closer to calving. The second round pasture can be really, really different to first uh, pasture round or grazing round. So first up, it can just simply be, I guess, a non-technical term of gutless. There's not a lot to it. Every mouthful contains much lower levels or amounts or grams of dry matter per, per every bite, and instead the cow's eating a lot more water. So it can be inefficient in some herds for cows to consume enough pasture to meet their energy needs of peak lactation. Now, some herds manage this really well, and the usual herds we're looking at of bites, every bite containing less dry matter as being a challenge, is in the bigger herds particularly who spend a lot more time on concrete, so milking times are a lot longer, or perhaps herds that do a lot of walking. It's a long way um, from the furthest away paddocks back to the shed, so they spend a lot of time every day walking instead of grazing. On the other hand, small herds, um, quick milking, they're not on concrete for very long, short walks straight back out into the pasture, they're less likely to have problems of reduced dry matter intake when the grass is very low dry matter. 
as well as that, the second round, very gutless, if you like, pasture can, uh, can sometimes contain really high levels of rumen degradable protein and, and total crude protein is really high and that might be quite a change from first round grass and can be a little bit of energy wasted needing to detoxify that protein through to urea. So that's a bit of a risk as well. If the weather's been really rubbish, um, at the same time the cows hit the second round grass, we have issues around low sugars. And at the end of the day, it becomes academic. You know, it may even be high potassium levels in second round grass increases risk of subclinical metabolic disease and appetite goes down. But whatever all of those factors combined, sometimes, not always, that cows can lose a little bit of weight as they go from first to second round grass. It's sort of that W rather than that U in terms of the graph of energy balance in cows. Do consider gutless grass as maybe one risk factor for cows that were cycling earlier, that they stop again approaching mating, but don't use it as a diagnostic dumping ground. Instead, just think about it and have a look at this issue further, getting your veterinarian engaged, your qualified nutritionist or farm consultant, to start to look through aspects around maybe feed quality testing, looking at your milk curve through this time, uh, milk protein, milk protein to fat ratio, like we, we mentioned before. So it might be um, second round pasture is a factor for some, but not for other herds. I guess we're moving into another cow-based factor that can impact our three-week submission rate during that first um, planned starter mating. And that, of course, is the issue of what happens with the cows that have done everything right, <laughs> like they've read the textbook, they are out of negative energy balance quite quickly after calving. They're ovulating really, really well. And we're saying, yeah, good on you girls. This is awesome. What happens if this ovulation is churning away beautifully? They're ovulating every 18 to 24 days. But, whoa, hang on a minute. They're not necessarily showing um, any heat signs at all. No signs of estrus. So we can't pick them up using you know, uh, heat detection aids such as tail paint and heat mount detectors. They're ovulating, but we're not seeing them. If we don't see them, we can't submit them to be mated during those critical first three weeks of mating. Damn it, don't you hate it when this happens? Having said that, collar and tag technology is better, much better than our eyes or our heat detection uh, depending on your type of technology you're using, but there's some very promising um, signs that technology with increased walking and other bits and pieces of subtle signs of heats might mean that we have fewer problems of these silent heats, ovulation not accompanied by um, uh, estrus or heat. But in the meantime, for many of us who don't have access to technology, we do need to cover this topic off around silent heats because... It's a real shame when you've done all you can to get your cows ovulating, but you're not being rewarded by cows showing particularly strong signs of estrus for us to then be able to pick up and submit these cows to be mated. Bit of a frustration, these ones. Now, in terms of why would we have silent heats, why would we have ovulation happening without signs of estrus or heat? Well, first up, and we touched on this briefly earlier in this podcast, is that the very first, like the number one ovulation that cows have after calving is almost never accompanied by any decent heat signs for us to pick these cows up. And in fact, there's been lots of work done over 
many um, years that shows that 80% or more of first ovulations after calving are silent. They're not accompanied by any signs. So we'll never get these visually or with heat mount detector aids like your KMARs or your scratches um, or, or tail paint. So this is a challenge and these can be so silent that we may not even get these at all at the first ovulation with our new technology around cows wearing collars and tags. So, yeah, these first ovulations are a bit of a mission. Now, on the other hand, every cycle that the cow has after that first ovulation, we get what's called priming with progesterone. Progesterone primes the reproductive tract and gets it more and more ready for mating. So every time a cow has a cycle, there's more likelihood that the reproductive tract is getting better and ready for mating, including every uh, ovulation she has, the probability of conception goes up, but also every ovulation that a cow has after calving, there's a better chance that that cow will show a good heat to accompany that ovulation. If we're looking at a lot of silent heats, the most important thing we need to do is to work on um, getting cows cycling as soon as we can after calving so she gets that annoying first ovulation out of the way that's almost always a silent one and if she can get three or even four cycles underway between calving and mating she's going to have much greater chance of not only conceiving to when we mated for the first time during the first three weeks of mating but clearly is actually that cow is going to get mated so the more cycles before mating the more chances are that she'll be detected and submitted and also to go and calf in um, the first three weeks of mating. So if we've got a herd that are cycling really well, your vet might palpate some of your apparent non-cyclers or anestrous cows and in actual fact their ovaries are nice and fat and plump. These follicles and seals and all sorts of good things happening there. It could be that you're having a silent heat issue, um, despite the cows that are cycling really, really well. In terms of what are some of the risk factors, well, again, here we go on negative energy balance. Oh, I thought you'd left that one behind, didn't you? So it appears that there are varying degrees or depth of negative energy balance, and if cows are severely in negative energy balance, that shuts down ovarian activity from starting up at all. On the other hand, a little bit of negative energy balance may be just enough to allow the cow to ovulate, but still to not express as tidy a heat signs as what we need to pick up and to submit those cows. So a lot of silent heats, we're still looking at more scratching our heads going, mm, there's a little bit of a negative energy balance risk still in play here. And this is where we overlay some breed effects here, because our big, uh, huge framed Holstein cows are at greater risk of showing silent heats to their ovulations than necessarily our Kiwi cross cows, just because our big black and white cows, particularly on 100% pasture-based systems, particularly on sloppy, gutless, second-round grass, are more likely to experience some degree of negative energy balance that may not shut them down from cycling, but certainly to reduce the chances of seeing them in heat. And of course, to define silent heat, it's not necessarily that they are showing zero heat signs, but instead of uh, being on heat and showing estrus uh, signs for 8 to 12 hours a day or more, hopefully, so we definitely pick them up, there's a greater chance with a bit of negative energy balance that the cows will just be on heat maybe for 
oh gosh, only an hour. And if that happens at midnight, we're never going to see them. They're probably not going to interact with other cows as much as they should. And therefore, you're less likely to budge or to knock off a bit of um, tail paint with mounting cows. She might only get mounted once and that's not enough to activate a heat mount detector. So yeah, silent heat isn't just yes or no as she's showing heat, but it can reduce the extent of um, expression of heat signs. So it's just something to think about. Silent heats, best thing we can do um, is get cows cycling as quickly as we can after calving and to avoid any secondary periods of uh, negative energy balance after calving. <laughs> We're always looking for nutritionally based fix-it things to get mating going better in cows and there is actually one quite cool thing that we do sometimes call into play here in New Zealand and that is to increase the iodine content in the diet to try and improve the strength and duration of estrus signs associated with ovulation. And that might be putting iodine into the stock water or increasing the amount that's going through a blend or pellets through the in-shed feeding system or, or indeed a partial mixed ration going onto the feed pad. Now, we're not going to talk about when to do this and how much iodine you should add because your veterinarian and nutritionist know your herd best. So we're not going to give any recipes here. So do talk to your rural professional about iodine as an option and it may not suit everyone. Now, just a quick point here back for our international listeners. Now, at this point in New Zealand, we are allowed to add additional iodine into the diet of our cows. But be aware that wherever you are based and uh, are milking cows, you may not have that luxury of being able to put extra iodine in to improve heat expression in your cows, mainly due to rules and regulations locally for you that are concerned or potentially concerned about iodine passing into the milk of cows that are um, providing either liquid milk or um, dairy products for human consumption. So this is a podcast that's very New Zealand-centric and we don't advise that you add iodine outside of New Zealand without first checking what's allowed to be done in your part of the world. So summing up, I guess, about cows that aren't showing heats, despite them ovulating really well, yeah, it's about trying to get cows lifting out of their negative energy balance if they've slipped into a second one um, since their initial loss of condition after calving. Good quality feed, you know, feed budgeting, boring as it is. No pinch points, um, looking after their appetite, you know, so no metabolic disease with um, cows that are cycling that are going down and the like. But also there's one other thing that we need to acknowledge um, about reduced heat signs associated with ovulating cows, and that's that it's to do with the prevalence of ovulating cows in the herd. Now, prevalence just means at any one point in time, what proportion of cows are ovulating? Now, earlier on after calving, when there's just a small handful of cows that are ovulating, you're less likely to see those cows because there aren't enough other ovulating cows in the herd to find each other and to start interacting with each other. And when we do have these cows that find each other and interact, they're called what we call sexually active groups, or here in New Zealand we call them SAGs. Now, SAGs, if you think about it, is that when we've got a high prevalence of cows that are ovulating, so at any one time there's lots of cows ovulating, they'll easily meet up with one another, um, they'll join a little pack if you like, and they'll roam around together, interact with each other, they'll 
chin each other. They'll, um, you know, mount, you know, front and back mount and do all the things that we need to do to activate heat mount detectors and to knock off tail paint. So that's a really important factor around prevalence of ovulating cows. And this explains why our use of heat mount detectors and tail paint is a lot more successful in seasonal calving herds simply because all the cows calve within a, a very short period of time. They're mated in a short period of time. So they have a high prevalence of cows that are ovulating at any one time to form sexually active groups and for you to pick them up. The other extreme, of course, is year-round calving herds where cows just calve continuously, which is very unusual in New Zealand. Year-round calving herds uh, at any one point in time have a low prevalence of ovulating cows. So often there are not enough cows to form sexually active groups. Therefore, you're likely to have what we'd categorise tr as true silent heats, that you're not seeing any signs, but actually that's just because there aren't enough other ovulating cows for that cow that's ovulating to hang out with and to knock off tail paint or heat mount detectors or whatever. And then, of course, other challenges of silent heats include uh, issues of climatic challenges, and we described before about how very wet miserable cold conditions, particularly in the lower South Island of New Zealand, where cows hit those negative energy uh, balance periods uh, heading into mating. And it may not be enough to stop them cycling, but it may be enough to break up those sexually active groups and stop those interactions. Therefore, what we see is an ovulation, but because they're turned with their bums into the cold driving rain, that they're less likely to show heats. And one final thing about silent heats that equally applies for pasture and, and total mixed ration systems is the um, the ground surface beneath the cow's feet. Now, when cows are on paddocks, they feel confident underfoot because they don't slip and slide if they're undertaking mounting activities, so they're likely to do really strong standing heats. On the other hand, cows hate to ride each other on concrete surfaces or any slippery, sloppy, muddy surfaces underfoot. So they may be ovulating, but may be less happy to interact with other ovulating cows because they're worried about slipping and sliding. So true for hill paddocks, I guess, as well, slipping and sliding down a hill. Cows may be ovulating, but she's less likely to interact with sexually active groups if they're not feeling confident to, uh, to do the riding activity, either standing to be ridden to knock off tail paint or riding other cows. And of course, one last thing, I guess, where there's always that argument between silent heats, in other words, cows are simply showing no signs of estrus for us to mate them on during that first critical three weeks of mating, but very briefly is taking the pressure off the cow and saying, actually, it's about us human beings. The cows may be magnificently showing heat signs, but we as human beings, and hey, we're only human for whatever reason, aren't actively and accurately picking those cows up. So it may be that we haven't been freshening up tail paint well enough and we don't actually notice that the tail paint's gone. Uh, maybe your tail painting and, and the cow's winter coat's coming off and we just paint over the top of it um, and it's fallen off so we really have no clue what's fallen off with winter coat molting versus actual true heat activity so we just don't bother submitting those cows. And... It's a real thing about heat detection fatigue. It's actually a written up issue in that if 
we spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of heat detection. So that might be from pre-mating four or five weeks out from uh, plan starter mating right through mating and to the very end of mating if you don't use cleanup balls. Heat detection fatigue is a real thing. And look, think about it. It can be quite an onerous, <laughs> tedious, repetitious task to do. And look, as human beings, don't beat ourselves up. Look, we, we get tired of doing repetitious work. And heat detection fatigue can mean that we're just not quite as sharp and as on the ball of picking um, cows up. And then, of course, for younger members of staff, well, not necessarily younger, but for newer to the industry members of staff, to be fair to them, if we, um, ones that have been around industry a bit longer, haven't done a good enough job of explaining to new staff how to pick up a cow that's on heat, so that might be um, decisions around, well, there's only a little bit of tail paint gone, is she on heat or not? She's lost a heat mount detector rather than activating it. Should we put her up or not? And that's decisions that you can instruct your staff on. But also some some other cool stuff to teach staff what to look for, like cows that are holding up their milk. And they're not letting down their milk. They don't have as much milk on board because they're on heat. Secondary heat signs, such as strands of estral mucus hanging out of the um, the vulva, you know, looking for the obvious rub marks on the pin bones. So be good to your new staff and, and make sure that you turn this into a fun thing around heat detection and or swap people in and out, experienced people, to give everyone a break if you are getting a bit of heat detection fatigue. Look, we sincerely hope that you found even just one or two points of this of interest to you. Because of the length of the podcast, maybe we've skimmed through some sections too quick and maybe missed some stuff. So we'd love to hear from you, um, your comments about what works um, or causes issues for you with poor submission rate um, in your herd. Head over to the Rumen Room, drop us um, some comments in, into the post where we, we're announcing this podcast going live. Start a whole new post if you want. Uh, or if you're a little on the shy side, just direct message um, to myself, Charlotte Westwood. Um, love to hear from you as well. But look, at the end of the day, just to, to reiterate that this podcast really is for general information only. And if you really are dealing with a reproductive problem, whether that be anything from a delayed calving rate through to submission problems, heat detection, heat expression in your cows, through to conception or whatever, please do engage the services of your rural professionals that form part of your support team. That might be, or should be your vets, um, alongside uh, qualified nutritionist and or your farm consultant. Remember, many heads um, clonked together, usually are better at trying to solve some of these problems uh, and also another expression, you know, a, a problem shared is a problem solved. Well, that's another Room and Room podcast done and dusted. Look, we really hope that you've enjoyed um, part two of this two-part series around ovulation and estrus in seasonally calving herds. I guess this one carried on from the content in part one. So if you haven't listened to part one and you've done part two first, hopefully this one will make more sense if you go back and now listen into part one because the two sort of feed into one another as uh, podcasts on the same topic. Great to have you along. As always, any comments, 
suggestions, feedback, tips and tricks of your very own around how you have managed to improve not only the onset of um, ovarian activity in your cows, but maybe other things that you've done to improve heat expression, just anything to do with getting a better overall three-week submission rate in your seasonally calved cows and mated cows, we would love to hear from you because, gosh, there's so many good ideas out there and we've got a lot of clever people following this podcast and tuning in and we'd love very much to hear from you. But look, in the meantime, for more information about all and anything to do with ruminant nutrition or if you want to get in touch with us, um, ask any questions, put your own posts up about your own experiences around ruminant nutrition and, and now reproductive performance, head over to Facebook, search up the Room and Room Facebook group. If you're not already a member, jump on in and join uh, our private group and hopefully you're enjoying that nutrition community. But in the meantime, thanks so much again for joining in. This has been Charlotte Westwood and on behalf of both myself and of course our sponsors PGG Rights and Seeds, hope that you have an awesome day out and about whatever you're up to and we look forward to you joining us again very, very soon. Cheers. Cheers.